I have been traveling with an old Bible, the um, New King James, and so I'm going to read the text from the ESV for you. And I'm going to begin in the ninth verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and read to the end of the chapter. And before we read this part of God's holy word, let's look again to him in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, we bow before you with great expectations that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us and inform us, and that as we hear your word read and preached, and then as we see it visibly, we pray that we might be so nourished and so strengthened and encouraged in our faith that we would leave here determined to be flaming evangelists, not Billy Graham or uh, someone who maybe has been endowed with the gift of evangelism, but faithful witnesses in all that we do and say and everything that you put in our hands to accomplish, and all that we have to suffer, may we learn from your word and be reminded again that our obligation is to be reconcilers, to be peacemakers, to be indeed as our Lord came into this world to seek and to save the lost. For that is why we have life in Christ now. We pray this with gratitude and joy in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God, beginning with verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again by giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For we, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and rose and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And thus ends this reading of God's inerrant, inspired word. May he engrave it on our hearts. There is a huge discipline, a spiritual discipline, for those who are witnesses and give testimony to Jesus Christ. Indeed, that is why we live. Once we come to Christ, we're not to live for ourselves. It's a lifelong struggle. And we get so easily distracted. We are so diluted by the things that, we, that are good in themselves. But the church of Jesus Christ, you as a Christian, you're not living now, according to the Apostle Paul who writes this by the Holy Spirit, for yourself. Your job is not to preserve capitalism. We love our freedom. We rejoice in the political freedoms we have, the economic freedoms, the religious freedom. And we're to be righteous citizens. We're to stand for righteousness. But our job is not to focus on keeping this country for the future. So this is not a political sermon. It's not a patriotic sermon. But then again, maybe it's the best kind of patriotic sermon. We are really ambassadors for Christ. Paul uses this metaphor here. He wants us to be his witnesses. He wants us all to be his evangelists, not just the professional missionaries. It's, a, it's quite clear in the New Testament, is it not? We are ambassadors. It's a position of honor and grave responsibility. An ambassador is a representative of a sovereign, of a king, to another king, from one court or one nation to another. And he has constraints placed upon him to give honor to that position and to be faithful to the sovereign he represents. So our Lord has endowed us with dignity and honor that we would not otherwise have if he did not appoint us to this position. So it exalts us. And there are four restraints that I want to point out to you in our text. And that's why I began with the ninth verse. A constraint is something that, that restrains you from 
as an ambassador going off and just going to cocktail parties, having social times, you're restrained from doing what you would ordinarily would like to do because you're going to have to give an account of yourself. You have to make reports. And you're not there to represent yourself. You're, as Paul says, it's as if God was appealing through you. So from, if you've not realized or remembered that that's what your job is, then from now on to the day God takes you to heaven, you are, remember, you are his ambassador. The first constraint that this ministry, and it is a ministry, and the message puts on us is that we want to please the Lord. Look in verse 9. We make it our aim. It is our goal, whether present or absent, that is, whether in the body or out of the body, to be well-pleasing to Him. Paul has been speaking about if our earthly house is destroyed, if this tent we live in is destroyed, we have a home in the heavens, our habitation is there, and we don't want to be unclothed. We want what is mortal to be completely absorbed, consumed by life. And because we have this life, we want to please the Lord with it. He says in verse 15, much the same thing, that He died for us so that we no longer live for ourselves. And we live for ourselves almost all of the time. He gets very little of our time. So really, our, our resume as an ambassador probably would not be really great but we can improve it. We've got time, perhaps, today. The Lord doesn't promise us tomorrow. You may live many more years. So there is time. We can improve ourselves as ambassadors. And so the, the first constraint upon us is that we, we live to please the Lord. Paul is getting us to question ourselves about this. And in the Old Testament book of Exodus, in chapter 21, there is this dramatic description of the slave who has perhaps been given a wife by his master and they've had children and the slave uh, is set free by the master. He, he's free to go. And this slave, if the slave says, well, I love my children, I love my wife, and I know if I leave, I have to leave them behind, but... I love my master and I want to continue to serve him. He's been good to me. So he says, I'm going to stay. I'm, I'm going to give up my right to be free. And so then he has to be taken before the priest and the priest um, actually pierces his earlobe. He takes him to a door perhaps in the house and he, he nails him to the doorpost as if to say, you're giving up your freedom from now on. You will forever serve your master. And, and that's what's happened to us. We've been nailed to Christ. He is the door. And so we're constrained by our love for our Master. We belong to Him. It's a commitment. Now, people don't mind making commitments, except most of us today, we want our commitments to be temporary at best, not forever. That's why marriage has fallen on the rocks for many Christians. It's 
something you can do and do without. But it's not. It's not... That's not a good testimony. It's not being the ambassador or the witness that Christ wants us to be. So it's a commitment. It, and there's a cost to it. There's this restraint. John White, a Christian psychologist and therapist, in his book, The Cost of Commitment, he writes about an, an American Marxist that he met in Mexico. And this is what that man said. There is one thing about which I am completely in earnest the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my meat and drink. I work at it by day and I dream of it by night. Its control over me grows greater with the passage of time. Therefore, I cannot have a friend, a lover, or even a conversation without relating them to this power that animates and controls my life. I measure people, books, and years and deeds according to the way they affected the communist cause and, and by their attitude to it. I've already been in jail for my ideas and if, I, and if need be, I'm ready to face death. All for the communist cause. That's a man whose one goal is to live for the cause of Karl Marx, it puts us to shame. The great English Bible translator William Tyndale said, if we look externally, there's a difference betwixt washing dishes and preaching the Word. But as touching God, there is no difference at all. So it's a matter of what he has given you to do for him. It might be sickness. It may be good health, riches, poverty. For better or worse, you are his witnesses. And whatever he brings you to do, whatever he makes of you, is you are to use that as your platform for reconciling the lost to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what our job is. We should never be satisfied with just being fed spiritually. It is a shame that we are satisfied, we're content to just come worship God and never work for Him, never witness for Him. John Piper has written a book. Many of you may have read it. Uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. And the theme, I believe, is missions exist because worship doesn't. We worship here, now. And when the church leaves, the building stands, but the church is still, you're still the church. And you're to work for Him. The motive is to give the Lord pleasure. Secondly, in verse 11, Paul says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust we are well known in your conscience. The second restraint is the fear of the Lord. We know the fear of the Lord, Paul says. Indeed, 
We know the terror of the Lord. So, because we do, we try to persuade others. Do you, do you ever walk around in the malls and the shopping centers and the grocery stores, just on the streets, and do you ever look at people and say, those people are all made in the image of God, and if they're in this world without God, they have no hope in this world. They're lost, they're estranged, they're alienated, they're at enmity with God. It started in Eden and it won't be done. All of the suffering in the world, those people are lost and you may be their only missionaries. Just to support missionaries in your prayers and with your funds is not enough. You have to be missionaries. And what did someone said? Either, either we are missionaries or we are a mission field. The fear of the Lord. The angels fear God. The seraphim hide their faces from God. The fallen angels, the demons, tremble in His presence. They know they're doomed. Paul says we have to think differently. We don't, in verse 16, we don't regard Christ the way we once did because, why? He's exalted to the right hand of God the Father. He reigns over heaven and earth and hell and everything. He is the sovereign. So we have to look at Jesus differently now because He is the King of kings. And we will all stand before the judgment throne of Christ that we may receive what is due us. That's what that verse means there in the 10th verse. What we've done, whether good or bad, we will receive what is due to us. Now, we don't have to pay for our sins if we believe in Christ. Those were nailed to the cross. But we will give an account as ambassadors. So we look at people differently. No matter how great they are, no matter how, who they are in the world or what they have done, we have to look at them as if they're lost in this world, then we need, they need to be rescued. There is a glory in rescuing sinners. The glory belongs solely to Jesus Christ, but we share in that glory when we rescue sinners. When we think about what we, need to, we can do for them. I have 13 grandchildren, and uh, I'm just, and they're teaching me. Our daughter and her husband live in Ocean Springs and they've got four and their oldest is six and they're planning to go to Peru. And so just recently, uh, Jonathan, they're sitting there at the table and uh, he just pipes up and he says, you know, we've got to be missionaries all over the world, but we, we have to be missionaries right here in our own neighborhood. And so there's two widowers living I think one has recently gotten married again, on either side of them. And so Jonathan says, we've got to plan what we're going to say to Mr. David and Mr. Weeks. And then he looked across the table to Porter, who is two. He said, you know, I'm going to pray that Porter be saved, because Porter is not a Christian. And Porter said, I do too love God, Jonathan. But he's thinking about it. And, and that's what you and I need to think about. We need to plan. This is a six-year-old. He's, his, his mother said, he's, teach, he's holding us accountable, Dad. We can't delegate being missionaries. If you're an ambassador for Christ, imagine going to another country and saying, well, I've 
I'm going to go fishing, and so I'm just going to ask my assistant if he'll just do the stuff I'm supposed to do. You can't do that. Why? Because, well, you want to please your sovereign, your Lord. And because you know the fear of God, you try to persuade people. And that's what we're to do. It's a message of peace. We're peacemakers. Job said in chapter 31, I was in terror of calamity from God and and I could not face His majesty. You know what hell is? No Scottish preacher said hell is being in the presence of God without a mediator. Heaven is being in the presence of God with the mediator. Every one of us will live in the presence of God forever. And if you're outside Christ, it will not be good because you will have no mediator. But if you are in Christ, and if you come to this table, you have to be in Christ, then you will have a mediator. Hebrews 10.31 says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And on the other hand, Jesus said, if you're in my hands, no one can snatch you out, not even the devil. If you're in my Father's hands, he cannot snatch you out. My Father and I are one. So, it's not so fearful if we're in Christ's hands. There's no real spirituality if you're dead. People are playing make-believe, and they're talking about, they're turning everything into spiritual or spirituality. For those who are dead in their sins, they're dead spiritually. They, they don't seek reconciliation from God. They don't care if they've offended Him. The one that we've offended is God. The Bible says here and in every place reconciliation is spoken of, it's God's reconciling us to Himself. And the only way you want to be friends with God is if He has drawn you to Himself in Christ. So he pursues us. I'll say one more thing about, about this second restraint. Um, G. Gratian Machen said in a sermon on this particular text, the motive of fear is used in many places in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. It's used with particular insistence in the teaching of Jesus. I think it's strange that one of the modern aberrations when men say it's degrading and sub-Christian to tell men to stand in fear of God. Many passages in the Bible, many, may be summarized by the fear of God constrains us. It's an evangelical motif. It's a motive that because we are aware of the realities of heaven and hell, we could all walk out this door and drop dead. We are aware that this is a temporary home and that we have a, a job to do. The third constraint in verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us or controls us, or the old word constrain. The, the, there are many elements and the basic elements in the created universe air, water, fire, and earth. They constrain everything material. Water as it's constrained through a narrow gorge forms the land. Parents constrain 
children, these little pagans who come in the world so precious, but they are pagans and they have to be constrained and restrained and sweetened. <clears throat> you and I, you know the, the hymn, Prone to Wonder, Lord, I Feel It. Prone to Leave the God I Love. Oh, here's my heart, take and seal it, seal it for your courts above. My, I don't have pictures to show you, so I'll speak again about Jonathan. I can tell you more about the others who are growing in the grace of Jesus Christ. But I saw a little saying. I was looking at the computer this morning, reading a, a, a commentary, and I saw a little note that I guess his dad had posted there, and the little quote was from him, Heaven is better than a ten-pound ice cream cone. Because he loves the Lord. The fourth constraint is the person and work of Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. All of these things are from God, Paul says in verse 18. And what was Jesus doing? Not counting our sins against us. That's the good news. It's also good news that God was counting our sins against Christ. That's the gospel. He counts our sins against Christ, against Jesus, against His own Son. He made Him who knew no sin. Jesus had no sin. He didn't need to go to the cross for His own sin. He absolutely sinned not one single time. He obeyed the law perfectly. He came into this world to fulfill all righteousness for you. That's, there's two prongs to the gospel, two aspects to the gospel. Jesus died for you. He obeyed for you. He was your substitute on the cross. He is your perfect righteousness. He is your perfect punishment. He is your perfect pardon. If He had not obeyed perfectly, His death would not have counted for you. So that, that's a huge constraint. And we have to keep reminding ourselves. We really do. So think about these things. It's the love of Christ that constrains us. It's the fear of God that constrains us so that we will try to persuade others. We don't have to worry about making them Christians. God will do that in His, in His power, in His time. We just have to announce the gospel, tell them. We want to please the Lord, the person and work of Christ. That's the measure of the love of God, is it not? My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Our greatest fear is the fear of what others think of us. But notice what Paul says. We're not thinking about others or even Christ according to the flesh. We don't care what people think of us. We have to be, if we have to be odd for God, we will. Because we have been appointed, we have this duty to try to persuade. It's the best program of evangelism. If you're motivated, if you're constrained by this consuming love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the bless, you don't miss this blessing. 
Now, as we come to this table, it is to feed you, to strengthen you, to nurture your faith, to embolden you to be His witnesses here in Jerusalem and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Let us pray. Almighty God, You have given us a commandment, but You give us what You command us to do. You give us Your Holy Spirit to inflame us with love. Lord, our hearts are cold so many times and our tongues are frozen. They're cold toward You. They're cold toward the lost, even in our own homes, in our own neighborhoods, perhaps even in this church, in our workplaces. Lord, take away this fear. Cause us to be so in love with You and so constrained by Your Spirit and by these things that we will trust You to work in us and through us and whatever price we have to pay, oh Lord, it will be worth it. It will be. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.